0: Okay, so here we are, April the 22nd, our lesson number 24 from our study in Matthew, and we're beginning with chapter 5 today, which of course is the beginning of what we know as the, the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be looking at that. One of the things that we notice about the Word of God here is, you know, the Old Testament ends with a Curse starts off talking about the law. It ends with a curse. And I'm talking particularly if you go to Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, you'll see what I'm talking about. And then with a period of silence, and then we begin in the New Testament with a message of blessing and hope. That's what we have. You know, we started in Matthew looking, of course, at the birth of Christ, going back in chapter 1 there of Matthew and looking at the genealogy, seeing how God has brought all of this to pass, how we have Messiah. He's here. He's born. We had the coronation, you know, when we looked at John the Baptist and Jesus coming forward and being baptized and John making his pronouncements over Jesus, presenting Him to the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Moving on and looking at His life his ministry from that point, but by the time it, we have to wait in Matthew, until we get up to chapter five here, to really get uh, a message, at least a written message from the Holy Spirit about from Christ. It just says that he was going about, particularly in his Galilean ministry, and he was preaching, and he was teaching, and he was healing. That's how we closed out chapter four. He was doing all of those things and had been doing them for several months. But here Matthew records a time, uh, a very special time, when Jesus made his way to a particular place, and he sat down and began to teach. You know, why we don't have more of a record about what Jesus did during that early ministry, I don't know. All I can tell you is it wasn't God's intent, it wasn't a... Work of the Holy Spirit to do that. We know from John, you know, John closes out his gospel talking about all that Christ had done. You know, he did a lot of other things. He said a lot of other things. There's no doubt, even the things that Jesus has taught uh, here in Dust Teaching, Chapter Five, in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, there's nothing to say he hadn't taught that before or mentioned that before. I mean, the gospel is the gospel. The kingdom is the kingdom. It's not like he was saying something else all during this time. This is just the point where we have it come together and the Holy Spirit has preserved it for us through the obedience and direction of Matthew. And that's what we have. Of course, Matthew stays true to his intent, which is God-inspired about presenting Christ as Messiah, his emphasis upon the kingdom of God. He's talking about a new way of life. He's talking about a new way of thinking. He's talking about what we might say today as a a totally new revelation, if you will, about ministry, about religion itself. And He's going to get right right down to the heart of it, which deals with what happens to a person on the inside. There's a definite distinction. You'll see it throughout. There's this contrast between doing things and doing things for the right motivation. Because you can find, as you know, there are people who do religious things. And of course, if we look at it in Jesus' day, the religious Jews, the scribes and Pharisees, they were all about that. They were all about the show. Much of it was pretense. The reason it was pretense, because there was nothing, nothing had changed in the heart. That's exactly what the Sermon on the Mount addresses. It addresses that. So we look at that. (coughs) And I thought, as I looked through this, a verse of Scripture came to mind, and there are multitudes of them. But I want you to keep this in mind, and I'll just use the one in Psalm chapter 51, verse 17. Now that's probably a verse that many of you are, are familiar with Psalm 51.17 because it's what it hinges on in my estimation. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Okay? A broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Now, we can take that even though that verse doesn't come right out of Matthew chapter 5. That's what this is about. This is about a change within a person that results in legitimate actions. Okay? Actions and words and endeavors and so forth that are genuinely reflective of a changed heart. Of a changed heart. And yet... As I say it'll drive us to our knees because as we look at this we 'll realize i can't do that i can't i can't be consistent with that. I can do that some of the time that might be my heart to do it this way, to have the right kind of attitude, the right kind of motivations to be involved always in the things that I need to be involved in to make. Make it known that I have chosen to live separate from the world and the world's way. We're in the world. We know how to do that from God's Word. We know what our responsibilities are. But we're to be distinguishably different. And that's what Jesus is going to be talking about in no short order here. So Matthew chapter 5 does begin the sermon. It'll run from chapter 5 through chapter 7. Just a few details here. Now this lesson today is of course an introductory lesson and the first and second verses here in chapter 5 lend themselves to that specifically. So let's look at that. I think it will help prepare us. We may get to 5.3 or maybe not. We'll just see. But it's Matthew's longest single recording of Christ's teaching. Beginning in 5.1 here. Taking us again all the way through chapter 7. So much information. The Sermon on the Mount is one of five discourses that we find in Matthew. Are you familiar with those? You have this one where he's talking about, of course, the kingdom life and so forth. And then you have the commissioning of the twelve later on in the second discourse in chapter was it 12, I think. Uh, kingdom parables. He begins teaching in the parables in chapter 13 of Matthew. We have all those wonderful parables. The childlikeness of the believer, which deals with uh, confrontation and discipline in the church in Matthew 18. And then, of course, lastly, you have the Olivet Discourse. What is that, 24 and 25, if I recall? So, uh, you see these particular areas as they're broken out in Matthew. So, this is the first one that we look at here. And it's just power-packed. These teachings reveal the character of a true, of a true Christian. That's what they talk about. A Christian's true character. It talks about the duties and the even the attitudes of a person who is following Christ. And then, of course, it'll talk about some of the dangers, if you will, of being a Christian disciple. Christ said, they hated me. They're going to hate you. Okay. Okay. That's pretty simple. Doesn't need a lot of You know, Greek work there. They hated me. They're going to hate you, okay? In this world, you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome. The world talks about our suffering because we are Christians, because we separate ourselves from the world and in effect draw attention to ourselves. I guess you might say in the vernacular, you make yourself a target. You make yourself a target. You make people uncomfortable because of the standard that you've adopted, because you don't respond like they think you ought to respond, and it puts them on their heels. They don't quite know how to deal with you, so they begin to interpret you as a threat from the beginning. You don't play by the anticipated rules. You choose to to love and to turn the other cheek and to say something encouraging, okay? You demonstrate to the world and through individuals who live in the world that you Not going to be impacted by their efforts, which are selfish and, quite frankly, demonic. That's the way it works. So, we will put ourselves out there in a position to be seen as different. But that's what it's about. We are to be different. And Christ is going to tell us, even in this chapter in just a few verses, we might get to it in three or four weeks, but... He's going to tell us, you know, they're going to see you differently. And this is the plan. This is the plan. This is all about the salt and light thing. Okay? This is all about letting your light shine, as he says in verse 16 of chapter 5 here. That's what this is about. So it's another opportunity for us to see ourselves and the demands of Christ. Quite frankly, not only is it life changing, but it is a radical experience in our life. It is change In the truest sense. Now granted, a lot of that change is slow. A lot of things happen all at once. Those are the things that God does that we can't do when you're talking about justification and a positional sanctification and all that. God takes care of that. But we are to live out our life, as it says, as Paul says, in fear and trembling, that is in reverence and in dependence upon God. We're to yield ourselves to the point where we can and will be changed and it will be a noticeable change. It won't be just words. It'll be words in action. And that's what it's about. This is powerful. This is demanding. This is opportunity for us to evaluate. Paul says, examine. Examine. And the Sermon on the Mount is going to allow us to examine ourselves. That's what it's going to do. So, a Christian's true character, duties, attitudes, even the dangers that are involved. This is about internal change. It's not about external change. You use the example in some of the material I was looking at of John the Baptist, who Christ says was the greatest you know, who had lived up until that time. And look at him, for example. I mean, here he is. He dresses funny. He stays away from people, you know, for the most part. He is in no way wrapped around any element of the world. He's totally separated until the call of Christ in his life. The, the duty that he was empowered to do from birth, you know, born, born with the Holy Spirit within him. You know, here he is doing what he's supposed to do. And yet, even in today's world, he would have been looked upon as some kind of nut or something. Somebody who looked different, acted different so much, wasn't in the mainstream of what the world would expect or call for. And yet, Christ's evaluation of him is that there's there's none greater. There's none greater. And then, on the heels of that, makes that... That profound statement that and, and a person who's born to Christ through faith, through the new birth, has even a greater potential than John had. Think about that. That's us talking about the impact that we can make in the lives of people and make an eternal difference. That is awesome. That's what's expected of us. That's what our potential is because of the power of Christ, not because of anything that we bring to the table. The teachings of Jesus here identify the nature of life in the kingdom of heaven. This is a new uh, understanding of existence itself, certainly in our spiritual life. It tells us literally how we are supposed to live. And there's this potential about being I guess you could say, as the Bible says, weary in well-doing because the more we strive to do these things, the more we realize that we don't measure up. And yet, that's exactly where it wants to take us. It wants to take us to that point where we know that we're totally dependent upon Christ. And it will do that. One indeed must be a believer in order to undertake any effort at obedience, or adherence to Christ's commands in this section. So if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you're going to be over-challenged. Over-challenged. But God will do His work. And that is the purpose of it. It's to show us our dependency upon Him. Now, those that are described here as blessed, or blessed as we say, right off the bat it tells us this is antithetical to the world's way. Right, Because the things that it lists here that make a person blessed or it lays the foundation for blessings to take place, it concerns things like being poor in spirit, as it says, or persons who mourn, or persons who are meek, persons who hunger and thirst, they're needful, they're desirous of a fulfillment, they feel something missing. It speaks of those who are merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, persecuted. That's what we're going to look at. Persecuted? So it's antithetical to the world's way, right out out of the bat here, right off the bat. It's a demand for perfection, and it's a perfection that we can't satisfy. In fact, every uh, commentator that I looked at, I looked at three or four sources on this study and continue to do that. They always talk about this, and there's a group of of, uh, people who take a particular thought with this. They want to take this uh, Sermon on the Mount and move it somewhere else that it's so impossible for Christians to live. They want to say, well, this is literally for, like, this is talking about the millennium. Okay, This is not talking about the way we want to live right now. See? And we'll look at that because MacArthur gives us some, some points here that will help, uh, help make it clear that no, it is talking about right now. Right now its impact upon us. We'll get to that. But the demand is there. The message is a radical demand for obedience from the Master Himself can only be approached or in any measure realized through the grace of God, through the provision of Christ's sacrificial work. And here, He's speaking specifically as it begins, and I think up through verse 16, He's speaking specifically to His disciples And we get the picture that the crowd begins to gather as he's talking. He starts out speaking to his disciples. Now, I don't know if we can say that he's talking just to uh, the the handful that he's chosen at that point. I think it's more than that. I think it's a larger group of people who could be described as his disciples. He takes them up there and begins talking, and then the crowd begins to gather. So, he's calling for a radical obedience. A radical obedience. Now, what he's going to do in the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to see it's a lot of exposition, if you will, about the law. Jesus will talk about the law and rightly interpreting the law. He'll basically give its full meaning. And this is necessary. And of course, it's like our lesson last week, it takes us back to, to Nehemiah chapter 8 and Ezra, where even then it was necessary regarding the law for a man of God to take that and to explain it and to show its meaning. This is what he's doing. But he's going to talk about the heart of it. He's going to talk about what truly motivates a person to bring themselves into compliance with the demands of Christ. And it's this emphasis upon the power of God within a person, not something that we can muster up from the outside. It condemns the legalism of the Pharisees. And ultimately, when we get up to chapter 7, a marvelous chapter, it'll close and we'll talk about repentance again. And it'll talk about the necessity of repentance. And it'll be another opportunity for us again to look at what a true repentance is. And that's where Christ is eventually going with this. The enormity of the standard here set by Christ Himself truly highlights the necessity for grace in our life. It'll cause you to cry out to God for grace. Well, some commentators believe that this is literally a collection, if you will, of Jesus' teachings. That it was actually taken by Matthew from other areas and pulled together. But there's a whole lot of evidence without going into all that the, that that's not the case. That this was a one seating, if you will, one uh, a presentation by Christ, a sermon by Christ. Not that Matthew wrote down every single word, but all of this happened on the hillside there at one time. Okay, So that's the one I'm going to go with. And if you want to Pull all these commentaries and read all the support you can, but I'm not going to take a lot of time to do that this morning. The overwhelming evidence is that Christ spoke it, at least in this case. Time, yeah, he had probably taught this before somewhere else, no doubt, uh, and would teach it later because, as we'll see, a lot of this does come out later in the New Testament in different places. But we have a. Uh, I just like I think it's important for us to to keep that picture that this is a. Uh, a, one event, like I say, a sit down thing for Christ, and the people are there listening, and they get the full load. Yeah, and I think that describes it best. Now you can go to Luke chapter six, and you're probably familiar with the Sermon on the Plain, as it says. It doesn't say the Sermon on the Mount. It says the Sermon on the Plain. You start scratching your head, and you say, hmm, "Well, is this the same? Is this the same one?" Is this the Sermon on the Mount? Well, yes, it is. Okay, and here a little word study does help us, as I understand, because some people right off the bat when they read the English translation say, "Well, wait, Matthew calls it the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Luke calls it the Sermon on the Plain." Now, uh, a mount is up here, okay, <laughs> and the plain is down here. So this is obviously two different locations. Well, no, it's it's really not that easy. Okay, it's not that easy. Um, a mount. Okay, the the word could be translated up in the hills. Okay, that's what it means. And the time you get around to the English translation, it's on a mount. If you're talking about Matthew five one here, whereas Luke, where he's talking about the plain, this can also mean a plateau. OK, not necessarily. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be specifically correct for you to picture like, you know, a desert valley or something, a plain like that. Or as we might go to like I, when I say plain, I think of the plains Indians, you know, I think of the, the vastness of the plains out west. That's in my mind. No, it's not that. It's Just talking about a, a plateau. And you might still say, well, how can you have a mountain and a plateau? Well, you have those all the time. In fact, I made a note when uh, we used to hunt in Tennessee. It's a beautiful property there that my brother in law's two cousins own. About a 600 acre farm there. And it's got these hills and then these little valleys. But there's one place that I used to bush hog up there that they called the Bald, B A L D, the Bald. And the Bald is just like this it's up on a big hill, not, not quite a mountain, just shy of being called a mountain, but a big hill. But when you go up, then there's this really flat place, like a big field, and then you go on up the the hill a little bit. They call it the bald. Okay, well that's the same kind of thing here. Okay, it's a plateau, not man-made, but it's up there on a hill or a small mountain, as we have here. Now Luke's only going to mention a few of these. You know, he doesn't give it the full uh, load here that. The Holy Spirit does through Matthew, but we're talking about the same event. Well, I talked about the fact that some say that because it is impossible in its demands, that a lot of folks say, you know, we just need to see this as talking about what it will be like during Christ's millennial reign. But this really can't be. For a number of reasons, and I said we've got five listed here um, that we have, again, from MacArthur's information, and they're fantastic. But first, and they make total sense, the text here does not indicate or imply that these things are for another age. It doesn't add that anywhere. There's no inkling of that. And when you see verses in the New Testament that do deal with future events and so forth, the New Testament is always explicit with that. It's pretty clear. We don't have any of that here. So that's proof number one, and there are five of them. Jesus demands them of people who were not living in the millennium. He's making those demands of people right now. Nothing about waiting until another time or something that's going to be incumbent upon us during that time. No, it's, it's right now. That's what the language supports. And then thirdly, many of the teachings here become meaningless when applied to the millennium. Like, for instance, it talks about the persecution of believers. Blessed are the persecuted in the millennium. We're not, we're not going to have that. So that doesn't even fit. That doesn't make sense Fourthly, every principle taught in this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is taught elsewhere in the New Testament in context that clearly apply to believers of this present age. So, we have that. And then lastly, there are many New Testament passages. We're going to examine these. Many New Testament passages that command equally impossible standards. When we read about them, you probably were thinking of some of them as, as you've read this and gone through this. So, and we realize that apart from the the power of Christ, that we cannot achieve these things. So, what would some of those be? There are other areas in Scripture, in the New Testament, where Christ set, or the the Holy Spirit sets forth. A word for us, a demand for us, a command for us that we think, wow, I can keep do that. At least I can't do it all the time. Romans 13, 14 is a simple one, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Now, we've used that verse a lot in the short time that I've been privileged to teach with you here. But think about it. Really? That's pretty clear, pretty succinct. Make no provision for the flesh. Period. It's a command. It doesn't say anything about, it. well, sometimes or if you feel like it or whatever, you're not suffering in any way. You know. No, don't do it, it says. Make no provision. And it's talking about committing oneself. We, we, we often go back and look at Daniel's commitment when we talk to this verse that he purposed in his heart not to defile himself. That's what it's talking about. Yes, we, we shoot for perfection. But do we get there? No, we don't. But this teaching reflects that. <coughs> 2 Corinthians seven one, where Paul, and he's been talking about and about to talk about you know, uh, repentance in a very clear way. But here he says, "...therefore having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit... Here's a good word perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, that could easily be part of our scriptures from Matthew 5. Paul's just saying it in a different way. We're to cleanse ourselves from all defilement. All means all here. And he he points us toward the standard of perfection, perfecting holiness. In the fear or reverence of God. And we have to agree that this is talking about an attitude. This is talking about a desire. This is talking about a priority in our life. This is talking about a desire that pushes out all the other selfishness, self-exalting, worldly motivations in our life. That's what Paul was saying to the church at Corinth. Philippians 1, 9, and 10, he says, "And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may prove the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So let me ask you this morning, because I've already asked myself, is your desire... Your true heartfelt desire in all things to be blameless before God. You know what we like to rely on? We just go back and we think about Jude's precious words, you know. He's able and will present us blameless before God. We are reliant upon that, right? Yeah. But because we know that, because that's taken root within us, because that's part of what we, if you will, feel and experience in our heart, we want to live for Christ. We want to show our love for Him because of that. And this will be the result. This is to be our motivation. To be presented blameless, Granted, we understand that solely because of the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ. We understand that. But we also understand that He commands us and says that we will be transformed. We will. This is a process in our life. Our sanctification continues. Our usefulness for God in the kingdom of God just what Matthew's been talking about here. will be greatly enhanced when we are more and more and more transformed into the image of Christ our Savior. Will we ever get there? Not in this life. Will we get better? Yes. By our own efforts? Absolutely not. Because of faith. Because of God's promise. Because of His empowerment. Because of His provision this will happen and we will experience the joy of it even if there's pain and suffering associated with it even if there's ridicule and rejection and 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 downright injury to us that's a wonderful thing a wonderful thing well that's what we have every principle taught we see elsewhere in the New Testament. And these are just examples. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, of course we know it means since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Now here it puts it in a little more practical sense, doesn't it? Because it implies that this is something that begins and something that continues. And the encouragement here. from Paul uh, to the Colossians was to keep doing this. He's acknowledging that, yes, this was the process that started at your salvation, but you keep doing this. Keep seeking the things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. (coughs) Listen, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. Wow. Now that's a daily struggle for us, is it not? That is a daily struggle. Because the world pulls against us. And we have so many opportunities to be, if you will, a part of the world. And we can even justify it. We can justify it if we think about it long and hard enough. And it becomes an effort for us to hear the voice of God and know what we need to participate in in this life, know what we need to spend our money on, know what should be changing our priorities in our life, because we have a new direction. It's a daily process. Hebrews twelve fourteen Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification, hey, without which he says, no one will see the Lord. Now that does speak of what he has accomplished, but again it goes back and highlights our continual pursuit of him. That's what it's about. He says something similar in Romans 12, 18. I won't go there. If you want to mark it, you can look. Or he doesn't. Well, Paul says it. In, well, he didn't write Hebrews. Never mind. First Peter 1, lastly here, First Peter 1, 15 and 16. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves. Thanks, Peter. Appreciate that. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. That's, you know, okay, Mom. Okay, I hear you. You know? That's the standard. This is what we can't lose sight of because it is written. It goes all the way back to Leviticus. Leviticus 19, 12. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Thank God He's taken care of that on His own initiative. Thank God He's provided that for us in eternity But there's a requirement there upon you and I as believers in this life to submit ourselves to Him and to allow Him to accomplish His works in our life in a way that shines, in a way that serves as seasoning in this lost and dying world. Listen, this is His plan. This is the church doing what the church is supposed to do. That's what this is. And nobody who belongs to Christ is off the hook here. (laughs) Nobody. This is what we are to do. And it should be our great joy because it comes with great reward both now and later. Now and later. Some get a little more now and some get a lot later. That's God's business, okay? Some will die, I'm sure, like Lazarus the beggar died in Luke 16. Okay? He didn't have any of the world's goods. He was kind of pathetic. Right? But he woke up in the bosom of Abraham. In contrast to the rich man who had everything. Everything! And now has nothing and will have nothing but torment for the rest of his existence. Listen the Sermon on the Mount helps us contemplate that reality. That's what it does. And it helps us answer the question, even though it's an impossible task, am I I willing to subject myself, how shall we say it, to following Christ to this extent, to allow the Word of God, the desire for Christ, to totally radicalize my life. Not so that the world would necessarily see me as a nut, but so that God may use me in the lives of other people for His eternal purposes. That's what this is about. Be perfect. For I'm perfect. We love the the little direction that we get that tells us, again, I use the word there, but that our pursuit in life for this is not about perfection, but it is about direction. It's about the area, the life that we've chosen, that we've committed ourselves to. We're moving forward in the power of Christ in our life because of our salvation in Him. That must be, first and foremost, our direction if we're to glean anything from the Sermon on the Mount. If we're to be changed by that. And you just can't say that Enough. So why is the Sermon on the Mount so important in Christ's teaching? Well, I'm going to give you five things here. Because it shows, if you will, the absolute necessity of the new birth. <coughs> Just go home and read it if you haven't done it already. Read chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7 of Matthew. <coughs> Y'all don't have to go read it right now. It? <laughs> but <coughs> the sermon shows the absolute necessity of the new birth. Great! So to the person who already is born again, they're thinking, hallelujah. Thank God that I'm in Christ because this is His standard. This is His standard. The sermon tends to drive the listener to Jesus Christ as man's only hope of meeting God's standard. That's it. That'll be the best that we can do with Christ. All that's accomplished is because of Him. I'm confident the Bible talks about in heaven, says He's going to wipe away all tears. The old church I used to go to used to sing, no tears in heaven, no tears. There's tears in heaven. What? He wouldn't have nothing to wipe away if there weren't any tears in heaven. What kind of tears would we have in heaven? Oh man, lost opportunity. Times that we failed God. And what will we focus on then? We'll focus upon the mercy and the grace of God. Is that not what salvation is about in the first place? It's about exalting Him. Christ will have His church. That's what it's about. It drives us, drives us, if you will, to Him. The sermon gives thirdly God's pattern for a true happiness, and we use that word here, to think of joy, of course, which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit for the Christian. This is where we see the pattern for true happiness in Christ. And really for true success. Because if you're moving in any effort apart from what God lays out here, in other words, you're trying to do maybe some noble things but the wrong way, you're mismotivated, or you're so dirty inside that God can't use you for the kind of work that He wants to do in the lives of others, this will help you get it straight. This will help you clear it up here. So that you can be, you know, as it says, a vessel fit for the Master's use. And what exudes out of your life will be genuine. It'll be the work of God and God alone. And His hand will be seen. So this sermon, he says, is perhaps the greatest scriptural resource for witnessing, for reaching others for Christ. Why is that? And he kind of tells us that in Verse 16, as we get on, that's that verse that says, let your light so shine before men that they'll see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Because this is the life that shines. This is the life that is set apart from the things of the world. This is the life in its genuineness that draws people, that gets people's attention. Not because of you, but because of the power of the Word of God in you. So, when we dedicate ourselves to living as close to these standards, as close to this challenge as we can get, then our life's going to be fruitful. You're going to see the change. And the change is going to, I'll use a metaphor again, to bring that, that glow, that capability, that genuineness about your life that God uses to get people's attention. It's literally the Word of God being lived out in you, and the Word of God is what gets the attention. It's not still hard for us to believe, is it, that we, as I say, don't bring anything to the game. We don't. Only Christ, and only in Christ. The sermon lastly reveals that life, the life, obedient, to the demands of this proclamation, is the only life that is pleasing to God. Is that not our reason, if you will, for living? If they ask you, what, what, what's life all about? Why are we here? Why are we doing what we do? And most of us give the right answer by saying, well, we're here to glorify God. That's what we're here for. That, that kind of covers it in a very broad perspective. And if we're in any way successful in that, by yielding to His Word, then that is the life that is pleasing to Him. This This was Abraham's testimony, was it not? And the testimony of so many others that they believed God. They pleased God. Others. Were they perfect? No. Were they sinful? Yes. Were they changed? Most definitely. They were. They were changed. Mark these verses. I'm not going to read them. We're going to run out of time. 1 Corinthians 15.49 2 Corinthians 3.18 Just mark those down and read those in support of the, the fifth point here when you can. We have time just to look at these first two Scriptures. 5.1 Jesus saw the crowds. He went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Let's just break this down a little bit and then we'll stop. He went up, an it says in the original language, to ascend or to climb. So we've got a picture of him going up this hill, if you will, that we talked about. Referred here in English as a mountain, later known as the Mount of Beatitude. It became the mountain. It was a place, but it wasn't until then. It was just a hill. But at that time, not a specific place. It's just a general term. He goes up and it says that he sat down and that's significant because that's the proper posture for any type of rabbinical teaching. That's what he did. In fact, in the culture of that day, if he was standing, it would have indicated that he was, would be reading the Scripture. You know, he would stand to read the Scripture just like when they go into the temple or the tabernacle. They stand to read the Scripture and then they sit down to teach. So this would have been important to the people who were looking at Him and that's, the, that's what He's doing. <coughs> Excuse me. It says that His disciples came to Him. And I've already touched on that a bit. These were the people who were already, they considered themselves followers of Christ and in a genuine way, not, not waiting for more food to be handed out, not waiting for another miracle or something, not that, no, they had heard the message. They were embracing the Word of God. And they were there to hear Him. And He brings those people up there with Him first and foremost to hear Him. And even the word came that's used there is a word that indicates that they came. Their attitude was to come or to assent to this point of worship. That's what they were doing as they came up. And it says that he, in verse uh, 2 of chapter 5, that he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, comma, and we'll have to get there next time. (laughs) But he opened his mouth. And you see that phrase, that he opened his mouth other places. Uh, It's a colloquial phrase in that day. It's what some describe as an idiom when they heard that. It was just a mode of expression. And they knew that what followed after that was going to be something official, something demanding, something that was revelatory okay, to their ears. So that, in closing, and in a nutshell really, is how we set up, or how the Holy Spirit has set this up. Jesus is there, particular place, particular time, all at the direction of God. He initially brings His disciples up there, the other disciples, Crowds are coming, wanting to hear, hey, is he going to heal somebody? Is he going to make some food? What's he going to do? They're coming up to see, and they're going to get a full load before it's over.